everybody, and welcome back to Sports Crunch with D. Crom. I'm your host, David Cromelo. And after we prayed to the football gods to give us a memorable Super Bowl 51 after a sub-power 2016 NFL product, which saw eight of ten playoff games wind up being very non-competitive, boy, did they deliver in timely fashion. Midway through the third quarter, it appeared that the Atlanta Falcons, leading 28-3, were headed toward an upset blowout victory over the NFL's greatest modern dynasty, the New England Patriots. But Tom Brady showed in ultimate fashion why he is who he is by engineering the largest comeback in Super Bowl history. And what transpired Sunday was such an epic moment in NFL and sports history that not even the best writers can find the best words to describe it. It requires an in-depth perspective to understand such a momentous occasion, and that is why it is an honor to welcome back my good friend Shelby Dermer once again in the show. Shelby, once again, is a journalism student at Ohio University, where he edits, he is the editor of Speakeasy Magazine, and also contributes to the Cincinnati Bagels uh, fan website, StripePipe.com. Welcome back, Shelby. Great to have you here. Hey, thanks again for having me, David. I'm good to discuss what a great game this was on Sunday. Oh, it was a game that the NFL and the country needed badly. And uh, I just want to ask you this. Was this the best Super Bowl of all time? No, no. It, it, I I have it uh, right around four or five. And, uh, that, and there's plenty of reasons why. Uh, you can actually, I wrote an article about it on sportsgrumble.com today on, on why it wasn't the best Super Bowl of all time. But, you know, it, it's definitely up there. And I think it just goes to show how kind of spoiled we've we've been in the 21st century when it comes to Super Bowls. Oh, most definitely. And uh, what Super Bowls did you have ahead of, of, of Super Bowl 51? Well, I, I actually, I think I put this at uh, number three, and right behind it, or right in front of it, rather, uh, number two was the 2007 uh, Giants win. Well, it would have been 2008 Giants win over the undefeated Patriots. And my number one Super Bowl, uh, and I said it as soon as it happened, was 2014 with uh, the Seahawks and Patriots and Malcolm Butler's game-winning interception. Yeah, and I understand the argument for that because both those games were competitive throughout, and this game wasn't really competitive until the fourth quarter. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, you had when one team was playing at their best, the other team wasn't, and that and that's the only reason uh, it falls uh, to three. And, and I think it, you could you could argue it was the best. Uh, Super Bowl of all time you know it was the only Super Bowl to ever go into overtime but I think uh, the deciding factor was overtime itself you know if there were a few twists and turns in that extra period maybe a a missed field goal or or another key special teams play a turnover or maybe even both Matt Ryan the NFL's MVP and Brady the Mount Rushmore of quarterbacks uh, getting a chance to have the ball then you could probably I'd probably put that I'd have a strong argument to put it at number one, but since it was just Brady driving down and winning the game right after Matthew Slater won the coin toss, uh, I, ha- I had to drop it to three. But but definitely, like you mentioned in the opening, a very entertaining game, uh, one that the NFL season definitely needed, especially after last year's Super Bowl uh, wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't up to par as like what we've seen in the in the previous ones with the Patriots and Seattle and the Giants and all those. Most definitely. And do you think uh, the outcome was more of a Falcons choke or more of a Patriots comeback or both? Well, you, you know, there, there's there's a little bit of both in in in, uh, in the game, you know, because uh, obviously when you score 31 unanswered points, it's a monstrous comeback. But when you look at how it transpired and, and just the 
monumental chances the Falcons had to put the game away, I'd have to lean more of it being uh, a choke in that regards by the Falcons. And, you know, it's the last few days it's been debated everywhere. Uh, The third and one call that ended up giving Tom Brady the ball at the Atlanta 25-yard line when it's third and one and you you go to an empty backfield set and take a five-step drop. I mean, Matt Ryan was 12 yards away from a first down when he only needed one uh, to move the chains. And even if they move, even if they get the first down there, you know, you take away an extra minute and a half, two minutes, even if you punt, you know, you force a Patriots offense that is, that's a dink and dunk offense and scoring quick is not their specialty, but you know, you give them the ball at the 25 yard line and that's what happens. And then right after that, you know, they, the Patriots still weren't out of the woods. Julio Jones makes that unbelievable catch that's now getting overlooked because it didn't result in any points you know you have uh, a sack uh, a holding penalty a sack that Matt Ryan can't take there as as good as his quarterback rating was on Sunday just absolutely can't take that sack the holding penalty negates a nine-yard catch by Muhammad Sanu and then an incompletion to Taylor Gabriel and first and 10 at the New England 22 turns into fourth and 33 back near midfield and they punt it away and and now you give Brady three and a half minutes to go 90 yards. And, uh, I mean, the rest was history after that. I think momentum was wearing uh, red, blue, and white, and it, it didn't stop wearing those colors either until uh, James White plunged in for the game winner. Oh, I completely agree. And, uh, and however, I think there is a, a story that I think people have missed um, uh, uh, um, the, these past couple of days. Uh, yes, I disagreed with the play call of, of Kyle Shanahan to uh, to not run the ball um, on that third and one that led to that strip sack fumble that made it a one score game, right? Or that, or to like throw it uh, when you had the ball inside the Patriots twenty five after that Julio Jones catch because all he did was a field goal to make it a two score game. But there's something uh, that I think people are missing, and I think this was a factor. Alex Mack's injury, as I was concerned about a week ago leading into this game, I thought that it was more serious than the Falcons were letting on, and it turned out it was serious. And Adam Schefter, in his report on Sunday morning, said that the Falcons weren't concerned about Mack and pass pro, but they were very worried that the injury would affect him in run blocking. And heck, that's why most of those runs that they were successful on in the first half were about zone stretch runs, which are a staple of the uh, Kyle Shanahan system. Um, where you bounce outside, but the Patriots did a great job of taking those away in the second half, and with Mack not full strength um, as a downhill run blocker up the gut, uh, I think that kind of played a role in their decisions to throw it there. Do you think that's a possibility? I think that's a great possibility, and and another injury was Tevin Coleman. Um, He he left the game shortly after his uh, six-yard touchdown catch that gave Atlanta that 25-point lead. Um, and you know, and, and late in the games, Coleman is is a is a bigger back than Freeman, uh, kind of your bruiser. And I think he'd probably be in there on that uh, once Julio Jones made that catch, and Atlanta was down at the New England twenty-two. But yeah, absolutely, at New England, and they also got great pressure. Uh, Devontae Freeman missed a block on Dante Hightower on that sack. But uh, as much as that point is, uh, David, it, it's valid. It's it very, it very much is. Um, one, when you're down there at the 22-yard line, you can run the ball three straight times and not get anything, and you still have one of the best kickers in a in an environment with no wind, 
kicking a 40-yard field goal that puts you up 11. You're already down there, and, I mean, a first down would be great. It would take it would take you all the way to the two-minute warning or have New England burn all of its timeouts, but you don't have to gain any. You don't have to gain a single yard, and they managed to move back 23. And secondly, it, you know, the third-and-one call where Ryan gets sacked, okay, so if, if Max's injury prevents you from, you know, a, a, an inside handoff, you, you could still call a quick pass. You don't have to call a, a five-step drop with Matt Ryan and back him up 12 yards away from the first down marker. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. I completely agree. This yeah. was a, a brain meltdown by Kyle Shanahan more than anything else, uh, I believe. Uh, I believe that the back injury played a role at how it uh, it minimized their uh, ruddy game options, but uh, Shanahan just uh, got too cute at the wrong time. I completely agree. So, But on the other hand, uh, it, it, there is an argument to make it more of a choke, but I think just look at this. The, it, 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 the Patriots come back. Keep in mind, the drive to tie the game started inside their own five, and they went to third and ten, and Brady completed a beautiful pass on third and ten to Chris Hogan. You cannot take that away at all. Yeah, it, I, I mean, I'm, that's why I said at the beginning of the question, it's, it's a little bit of both uh, because, you know, you, you score 31 unanswered. The, you did a great job, and, and Brady's doing this while being one-dimensional. The Falcons know they're going to pass every play. They couldn't run the ball at all. They gained 89 yards on 24 design run plays. LeGarrette Blunt gained 31 yards, lost his first fumble since the regular season loss to Arizona back when Jimmy Garoppolo was starting. But, you know, at the same time, two plays after that Chris Hogan catch, which was a great throw, an out route near the sidelines in between, underneath a, underneath a safety over top of linebacker in his own coverage. Two plays after that, you have Julian Edelman's catch that – hit uh hit the Atlanta Falcons cornerback in the hands before it did anything. So uh, there there's a little bit of luck there. We might be we might be singing a different tune if uh Alford's able to catch that ball. But yeah, you can't take anything away from Brady. There, there there's not another quarterback in the NFL that could have orchestrated this comeback. Uh but and then there's there's so many factors that go into this. You know, the Falcons were averaging 7.5 yards of play throughout the game, but the the biggest thing that stands out to me was time of possession. You Ego. know, Freeney and and Beasley and those guys were getting after Brady and making his life uh, so hard in the first half and, and it resulted in a in a pick six and Brady became the first Super Bowl MVP. The Patriots are the first Super Bowl winning team to throw a pick six um, in the Super Bowl. That's just a fun fact there, I guess. But you, you go down twenty one to nothing. But at the end of the day, um, Atlanta ran forty six offensive plays. New England ran ninety three. So uh, they, that's more than double uh, than what Atlanta did. And by the time it's the fourth quarter and Atlanta uh, has these quick th- a three and out with a punt, after they started in New England territory after that failed onside kick, they were at the New England 32-yard line, second and one, went back. Austin Hooper dropped a pass. There was a holding on Matthews, another sack, and, and they, they blew a chance there. That kind of gets overlooked as well. Um, but you know, those short drives and Atlanta's defense just had to be gassed and it doesn't help that they lose the coin toss too. And new England gets the ball right back. So, uh, as, as great as Brady was, you got to think Atlanta didn't have as much in the tank as they did in the first half when they were, when they were delivering hits to Brady, uh, almost every time he dropped back. Oh, exactly. They, they looked completely out of gas, uh, in the fourth quarter and also, uh, you referenced that Julio Jones catch early on. Well, just like that Elman catch, 
that should have been intercepted by the Patriots as well. So um, uh, there was uh, the Falcons could, uh, 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 couldn't take advantage of that lucky bounce, and the uh, Patriots took advantage of their uh, lucky bounce with Edelman's uh, Jermaine Curses, David Tyreesque uh, catch that is going to go down in lore, in Super Bowl lore, um, for all time. Yeah. And uh, and moving on before. Uh, the game, both you and I agreed that no matter what happened, Tom Brady was all already the best quarterback to ever play football. Uh, but I think this, the nature of this game even adds his legacy, takes it to another level. I personally think that Tom Brady now is the best football player of all time, regardless of position. Do you share that same sentiment? Uh, see, you, you know, you can... You can debate. I think he put away the the quarterback debate um, for good, and and like we like you said, we we both agreed uh, beforehand. He already had it. But as far as positions, you know, he still hasn't won the most Super Bowls of any player. He's tied with Charles Haley, played with the great Forty ers and Cowboys teams of Joe Montana and Troy Aikman and uh, Bill Walsh, Barry Switzer, and uh, Jimmy Johnson. Uh, but if we're going of any position, I would have to, uh, I would have to say no. I, I, th- I still think I like Jerry Rice in that regard. Um, uh, I was, I think it's actually very close between Brady and Rice. The only thing that separates Brady, in my opinion, is the position he plays being a more reports, but he and Rice are from a very similar ilk is that they weren't born with the best athletic gifts. They weren't born with the best size. They weren't born with the strongest strength, but they just both outworked everybody. They outworked each one of their peers and mastered the basics of their craft so beautifully that, uh, that they were able to overcome whatever so-called athletic deficiencies they had. That's why I view Brady and Rice in the same, in the same ilk, as I said. Yeah, and you can make the debate for either of those two players, but you know, also Brady played at a powerhouse Big Ten uh, team in Michigan that was that you know won an Orange Bowl against Alabama in 2000. Meanwhile, you have Jerry Rice uh, playing at Mississippi Valley State. So, <laughs> uh, you know, as far as collegiate uh, matters are concerned, you know, Rice had probably the tougher time getting his name out there, even though Brady did too, uh, but also. At the same time, you can look at that and say, well, Brady was a sixth-round pick, 198 or 199 taken, and, and Jerry Rice went 15th overall to the 49ers. So, you know, that, and that's why you can make the case uh, for either of the two. But, uh, but yeah, definitely Brady's up there one or two to me, and I think I think he's neck and neck with Jerry Rice, but I just give Jerry Rice the upper hand. But it, it's, it's very close, and, and Brady's not done either, so... Oh, 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 he's definitely not done. And that brings us to our next question. Uh, how many more years do you think Todd Brady has left in him? Uh, Peyton Manning himself is on record saying that he expected Brady to play until he's 45. I don't. I am not ready to go that far at the moment, but I think he has at least two or three years left in him. Um, what do you say? Yeah, I, I, if, you know, if I had to ballpark it right now, I would say just three years. I think that's a safe uh, estimate. He's going he's gonna to be 40 here soon. But then you look at, at just what he's done. I mean, this year he, he sat out four games, went on a tear, and, and, you know, look at his touchdown-interception ratio. Probably would have been the league MVP had he played in the first four games. 
not to discredit Matt Ryan's amazing season, but also Brady was playing, you know, look what he did with, with Chris Hogan and, 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 you know, Julian Edelman's a seventh rounder. Danny Amendola was uh, an outcast with the Rams and came to new England. Didn't have uh, Rob Gronkowski uh, benefited with Martellus Bennett uh, using James White out of the backfield. Uh, but I mean, he's still playing at a high level, but you know, I just don't see, I can't picture Brady having such a drop off like you saw in Peyton Manning in, in 2013 when that Denver offense was so good. And then by, by last season, uh, he was getting benched. I, I just can never picture that happening uh, to, to Tom Brady. And, you know, if, if there was going to be a replacement plan uh, set here in the near future, the Patriots wouldn't be shopping Jimmy Garoppolo, but uh, indeed they are. So it, it'll definitely, because I don't think he will stay in New England, it'll definitely uh, be interesting to see if, if the Patriots are to draft a quarterback as like the the – like the Ryan Mallett or the Jimmy Garoppolo that's going to sit behind Brady for two or three seasons, Brian Hoyer, Matt Castle. And if, if this is going to be the guy that replaces him in three years, but you know, right now, David, I say three years cause it's a ballpark, but when you watch him uh, throw for a Super Bowl record, 466 yards at his age, you know, you don't see a stop sign in the near future. Oh, Oh, you most certainly do not. And the and fact that you mentioned Pate Manning's uh, drop off, uh, let me chime in. Um, a, a lot of people are saying, heck, if Brady could play uh, into his mid-40s and Breeze, uh, it looks like Breeze could play into his mid-40s. Why couldn't Peyton Manning? I think here's the reason why. P- neither Breeze nor Brady went through the same health problems that Peyton Manning did. No. Uh, Pey- Peyton Manning, uh, that neck fusion surgery had forced Peyton to alter his game drastically. It, the, the, his arm strength was sapped. <clears throat> The minute after that neck surgery, he just was able to hide it because he strengthened his lower body enough to compensate for the loss of arm strength. But but in 2015, his lower body started to give out, and that was the end. So I think it had to do with uh, the after effects of that surgery and the adjustments he had to make uh, wearing off. That set Peyton Manning's career uh, down the garbage chute uh, very fast. But I should say garbage chute because uh, he was able to win a Super Bowl thanks to one of the best uh, defenses of all time. But uh, that's another story. But the thing with Brady is that he eats an almost vegan-esque diet during the the year. And I think eating that diet, like, for instance, he eats avocado-based ice cream, which is obviously a vegan-based dessert. Uh, And he is on a strict sleep schedule. He goes to bed at 8.30 every night, um, so he gets at least, like, seven, eight hours of sleep uh, every night. Uh, I think it's no accident because of the way he eats and sleeps that he is still – uh, could still play at a high level. Do you think his uh, health regimen uh, plays a big factor in that, Shelby? Well, I mean, it it, it can't hurt him, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, if you're if you're going to bed at eight thirty every night, you're definitely taking care. I mean, obviously he's in great shape. Uh, so I mean, that's I mean, it's obviously not the only factor, but it, it's obviously going to help him as well. Uh, but you know, you mentioned with with Manning and the and his uh, foot injury, and then the the neck fusion, and you know, but but Drew Brees and Tom Brady have been through their injuries too. Brees had a torn labrum in his shoulder, and and his arm strength uh, dipped off too, and that's why he left San Diego. And Philip Rivers came in. Tom Brady missed the whole season with a with a torn He's knee. Still, but uh, those were nowhere near as catastrophic as what Peyton Manning had to go through. Is my point? Right, right, and and that and that is a de- is a debate of, of what Manning, how Manning dropped off. Uh, it's so drastically in two seasons, but but the thing with Brady too is you mentioned the diet and the sleep schedule, but and also he's got one of the quickest releases 
uh, in NFL history. You know, the, the Patriots, uh, you know, they devised that offense to, you know, short passing routes, crossing over the middle. Uh, the, Brady's not standing back in the pocket and delivering deep balls like he did in 2007 to Randy Moss. That's just not their style anymore. His Their style is quick passes to Gronk, Edelman, Amendola, Hogan, uh, Martellus Bennett, Malcolm Mitchell, uh, out of the backfield of James White. And, you know, the, when, the, when the Patriots lose, it's because uh, the – they can't protect Brady. And I, I think it's just a, it's a big combination of, of how he prepares himself for each season, the shape he stays in, and also the Patriots offense that does its best to protect him at all costs. Oh, most definitely. And uh, if you could, Ed, moving forward, if you could pick one single play in this Super Bowl, we've addressed these um, already, the progress, but if you could pick one play that turned out to be the turning point in this game, what play was it in your view? Ooh. It has to be Matt Ryan getting sacked and fumbling because, you know, uh, in hindsight, say Matt Ryan gets sacked, doesn't fumble. You know, Bosher comes on, punts the ball away. Patriots get it around their own 30. You know, they got to go 70 yards. It probably takes them three or four minutes. That means you give Atlanta back the ball with, you know, around two and a half, three minutes to play. If you don't kick an onside kick, which they were already unsuccessful, you kick an onside kick, uh, you know, you have uh, Atlanta has great field position and they can pin you deeper for your final drive. But uh, either way, uh, if, if you just punt the ball there, the Patriots say they go down and score because nothing could virtually stop them in the second half. And then they stop Atlanta. They punt it back. The Patriots are looking of like, you know, they're at a little bit south of the two-minute warning, maybe with one timeout, maybe none. Um, and they got to go 75, 80 yards instead of going 90 yards in three and a half minutes with all three timeouts. So I think that that fumble was was the one that did it. I would have to completely agree um, uh, with you there. And, uh, and now let's get into another aspect of the game. Well, um, like we all know, obviously, who the MVPs of the top performers are, but there are a lot of unsung heroes that go into winning a Super Bowl. Like, for example, last year with the Denver Broncos, Derek Wolf and Malik Jackson were the two unsung heroes of that Super Bowl run. And why Jackson got paid. Yeah, that's why Malik Jackson got paid. And the Broncos were very fortunate to get Derek Wolf at a discount because uh, Derek Wolf would have made even bigger money elsewhere. Wouldn't you say so? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, so you have those two guys. And if the Falcons hug on and win, I would point to Grady Jarrett as the unsung hero, a guy who I was banging the table for the Broncos to draft a couple years ago, and he showed you why with that three-sack performance. But Absolutely. But let's focus on the Patriots right now. Aside from, obviously, Tom Brady and James White and that Julian Edelman catch, who was the main difference maker for the Patriots that helped put them over the top? Well, I mean, you, you, took, away, uh, you took away three there. Um, so I think, uh, remaining, I have two, one would be Danny Amendola, eight catches for 78 yards and a touchdown. Um, obviously it's overshadowed because James White caught 14 passes for 110 and a touchdown, but Amendola caught the touchdown and he fought in to get that huge two point conversion, uh, that tied the game. Even though if he doesn't get in the Patriots get another chance because, uh, Mr. Freeney was off sides. So they would have got it at the one yard line, but nonetheless, he still fought in to get that two point conversion. So that he would be um, an unsung hero, and, and also it has to be Dante Hightower for that sack. Um, y- you know, outside that sack, you know, it's hard. Defensive players have to make splash plays in order to be a Super Bowl MVP. 
uh, uh, I'm blanking on the Seattle defensive MVP from the win over Denver had the uh, Malcolm uh, Smith. Malcolm Smith, thank you. Although um, Cliff Averill should have won that MVP in my opinion. Yeah, but you know Smith had the big uh, a bigger splash play with the pick six that pretty much sealed that game in my opinion. Yes. But early. which helped with an Averill pressure, an Averill right. pressure cost. Exactly. But, you know, no one, no one, Allen Branch recovered that fumble, and High, Hightower does, doesn't get as much hype as Branch does for recovering that fumble. But Hightower, this is the second time he saved a Super Bowl for New England. Obviously, he saves it there, in my opinion, because that's the, oh, yeah. the biggest play, like you asked. But, and that you tackle know, on Marshawn Lynch in Super exactly. Bowl 49. Yeah, two years ago, he, he bench pressed Russell Okung out of the way to, to chop down Marshawn Lynch at the one yard line. And then, of course, Malcolm Butler saves the game with the interception. So I think uh, from a defensive standpoint, uh, overall on New England's defense, it's hard to – got to find a, somewhere to pick an MVP because Atlanta had two touchdown drives. Um, or, sorry, Atlanta scored – offense scored 21 points, but they only, they only had 46 plays on offense. So it, it's hard to pinpoint uh, exactly who on the New England defense would be uh, deserving, but I'd have to say Hightower because – that was the Patriots' only takeaway of the game. Yeah, and uh, yes, it, it is hard hard to find contributors. But here's another guy I would like to add as an unsung hero. He made two key catches on key drives. Malcolm Mitchell, their rookie receiver from Georgia, made some very key catches down the stretch. And yeah. uh, he uh, has quietly become a weapon in that offense. The Tom Brady is trusting more and more. And, uh, and Malcolm Mitchell has turned out to be a rare wide receiver Drafted by Bill Belichick, and uh, I think if he doesn't obviously make two catches, it's required everybody in the com- involved to seal uh, the best comeback victory in Super Bowl history. I think Malcolm Mitchell is my personal unsung hero for the uh, Patriots. Yeah, and and you know you look down the box score, pretty much everyone who touched the ball offensively for New England outside uh, Deion Lewis and Legarrette Blunt had a great day. Obviously, James White had two rushing scores and a, a bunch of ca- fourteen catches. 110 yards and a touchdown. Julian Edelman had five for 87 in that uh, miraculous tip catch. Danny Amendola had a touchdown and a two-point conversion. Malcolm Mitchell had those two big catches. Martellus Bennett had five for 67. And remember, he caught that tip pass in the first half when the score was 21 to nothing. That very well could have been an interception again uh, on New England's last drive of the first half. It ended up being a field goal, but it's a tip pass fluttering over the middle, and he just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And you mentioned also Chris Hogan, four for fifty-seven, and of course has that fifteen-yarder on third and ten that gets uh, New England going on that last drive of regulation. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, and obviously, as you cannot point to one big uh, player not named Todd Brady who delivered for the Patriots, uh, it's hard to find a scapegoat uh, for the uh, Atlanta Falcons' uh, collapse. But we pointed to, uh, obviously, Kyle Shanahan's play calling and Matt Ryan not getting rid of the ball on that sack uh, when the, the Falcons had it in field goal range to potentially go up 11. Uh, right. Aside from Shanahan's play calling and Matt Ryan, who cost the Falcons the most, arguably, down the stretch? It's hard to find, but yeah, uh, it, who would you it, it, Yeah, it's very hard to find. But but honestly, I'd have to go with Devontae Freeman because I keep going back to that uh that fumble being the biggest turning point of the game. And he clearly missed a block and you could clearly see him turn around and watch uh, Dante Hightower drill his quarterback. And as good as he was, he had a few long runs. He, he, he opened the game scoring with a touchdown run. He had a 39 yard catch uh, in the fourth quarter. 
but he missed that block. But it, it's just it, it is very hard to find someone outside of Matt Ryan and, and also Dan Quinn. At what point, you know, I, I get it that Shanahan runs the offense, but at some point, if it's third and one, you got to lean over there and say, hey, we got to run the ball. And, you know, he didn't learn his lesson from Super Bowl 49. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, okay, so you let Shanahan throw it on third and one. Now you're at the 22 yard line. Shanahan calls two more pass plays. Hey, run the ball. No, I'm taking over. I'm the, I'm the head coach. You'll have your turn turning around a terrible franchise here in about two weeks with the 49ers. Maybe less than that. Let This is the biggest game of the year. Let me save you because, you know, we just run the ball and kick a field goal. We're popping champagne here in a half an hour. So, <laughs> you know, at, at some point, I get it that Quinn is a defensive-minded coach. Uh, obviously, he, this is his third Super Bowl in the last four years he's coaching in. Uh, but, you know, this is his team, and he's the head coach that gets a Super Bowl win next to his name if the Falcons pull off this upset and hold on to this lead. So at some point, you, he's got to learn to go over to Kyle Shanahan and say, hey, I know you're the offensive coordinator. I know you made Matt Ryan an MVP. I know we scored 500 points in the regular season, 30-something a game, but run the ball here, let's kick a field goal, and we'll get sized for rings later. Yes, amen. And also, I can only imagine that uh, Kyle Shanahan's going to be peppered with a lot of such questions when he meets the uh, 49ers and Bay Area sports beat in his introductory press conference on Thursday. Yeah, that I, absolutely. I can't imagine they don't bring it up. Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, and that's going to be a big cloud hanging over his head to start his uh, head coaching career. And uh, now let's uh, 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 move forward because... Uh, as the play part of the NFL season, uh, the 2016 version may be over, but uh, the there there's no offseason. There's only a non-playing season. We have the combine in three weeks. Free agency begins exactly four weeks from Thursday, and uh, and I and on this program we're going to be talking a lot about those uh, two major events in the National Football League in the weeks to come. And uh, now, but I want to use the final part of today's show to focus on. Uh, what awaits the Patriots and the Falcons um, in these next uh, several weeks and months going ahead. Projecting both of these teams going forward, first for the Patriots, uh, does this win, minus Rob, this Super Bowl win, minus Rob Gronkowski, make him expendable? And do you see the Patriots trading kid, especially after undergoing the third back surgery of his career and him uh, inching closer to 30? Well, you know, I, I think you could argue as, as a lot of sports debates, I mean, you can make a clear argument for either one. I mean, he's obviously one of the best uh, tight ends in the NFL, um, clearly. Uh, you know, and, and teams try to model what the Patriots have had, uh, have done with their tight ends. Um, and, but now, once you bring in Martellus Bennett, a great tight end with the Bears for a while, uh, it, it definitely makes Gronkowski uh, expendable because, you know, his injuries just keep seeming to rack up and, and it's always, it just seems like it's a season season ender. And as impactful as he is, I think the Bengals are going through the same thing. If I could hit home a little bit with Tyler Eifert, um, he can't seem to see, stay healthy either. Um, and as much as, uh, as much as I would love to see him stay with the Bengals, it's just, it's just something worth discussing when you, you know, a guy's constantly uh, in street clothes on the sidelines and also, you have the Belichick factor, as we've seen, uh, we talked about on your previous show, 
Uh, he's not afraid to trade anybody. He shipped Jamie Collins to the uh, worst team in the NFL midseason, and he could have had a Super Bowl ring at this point. So uh, definitely I think uh, it makes Rob Gronkowski expendable because you know there's going to be a team out there willing to bid a lot uh, of draft picks um, or you know a lot in return for Gronkowski, who has uh, obviously had his fair share of difficulties uh, staying on the field. Absolutely. And now moving on to the Falcons, and in case uh, y'all um, uh, didn't hear, there was some big news today in regards to who will succeed Kyle Shanahan as the Falcons' offensive coordinator. The Falcons wasted no time in um, uh, tabbing a successor to Kyle Shanahan. Uh, and as the Jordan Schultz of Huffington Post was first to report, Steve Sarkeesian, former head coach at USC and former one-game offensive coordinator for the Alabama Crimson Tide, will indeed be the new Falcons offensive coordinator. What is your opinion of the Sarkeesian hire, and do you think the Falcons could still be an elite offense without Kyle Shanahan uh, next season? Well, absolutely, they can still be uh, a a, a great offense again, but but what you get with Sarkeesian is, you know, uh, schemes that are going to be similar to to what Kyle Shanahan did there. Uh, a, a lot of outside zone runs, uh, you know, play action passes, um, anything to give Matt Ryan more time. Uh, you know, Sarkeesian has a power running back with Bo Scarborough that he worked with. Uh, now he gets uh, two very capable backs in Tevin Coleman um, and Devontae Freeman. And you know, with all these weapons, I, I don't think I, I would I would fret too much uh, if I'm a Falcons fan because you know you're, you're coming off a year where you won a conference championship, your quarterback was an MVP, and I, I don't think uh, it changes too much in terms of uh, offensive schemes. I think a lot of spread offense still, uh, throwing the ball, and when they are running, maybe hopefully a little more in crunch time, uh, like we saw on Sunday. But I think it's going to be similar, and I think the Falcons are still going to be a team that puts up a lot of points. I, I completely agree. And so I assume that you approve of the Sarkeesian hire. Do you think the Falcons uh, found a worthy successor to Kyle Shanahan? Oh, absolutely. Uh, very successful coach uh, wherever he's been. So uh, when he was with USC, they averaged over 35 uh, points a game back in you know uh, the Leonard era in 05 and then uh, up until 2007. Uh, when he was offensive coordinator there. So uh, I definitely approve of the hire. He is Shelby Dermer, ladies and gentlemen. You can follow him on Twitter at SCDermer4. That, that's the digit four. And he is a student at Ohio University where he majors in journalism. And he is the editor of Speakeasy Magazine, which is a student publication there and also contributes to the Bengals, uh, Bengals fan website, stripehype.com. Shelby, once again, we thank you very much for contributing your amazing knowledge of this game of football to the program. And I definitely hope to have you on the program regularly going forward to discuss what is going on as the NFL transitions into the 2017 calendar season. Hey, thanks again for having me, David. I'll, I'll be on anytime. I love it. Sounds great. Shelby Dermer, ladies and gentlemen. And that does it for today's Super Bowl 51 recap here at Sports Crunch with Decrom. But we will be back next week as we preview the NFL Scouting Combine and NFL Free Agency, which are to occur in these next three to four weeks. So the as the 2016 season has ended, the 2017 season already begins in earnest with a flurry of activity await. And we here at Sports Crunch with Decrom will have it all covered for you. But for now... Uh, For Chris Broadhead, our producer, our special guest, Shelby Dermer, and me, David Cromelow, so long and stay frosty.